Oh, not so. So now I'd like you to open this up. I don't, I don't have in my, notion, in my mind the notion question and answer. If you have a question, you're welcome to pose it. But reflections, experiences, whatever you'd like to share with the group, in the spirit that I think we all know is the way to healing and not to greater divisiveness. So I'll sweep left, left or right. I'll start with Craig. As a fellow American, fellow Californian. Craig in the back. <coughs> a group question or a question to you as well uh, as how the results of this election correspond to our own path of wisdom cultivation like we, we you know like we can't really make positive strides in our own spiritual life until we're aware of those elements of our mind and our behavior that are causing us suffering. Exactly right. Well said. And um, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a naturalized, I'm a naturalized American. I wasn't born there. Mm -hmm. So my uh, orientation, my philosophical orientation is a little different than someone who was raised in sure. the milieu of, sure. of Americana. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I've seen in my own experience of America that it's a young country. Yeah, I have that very strong sense myself. <laughs> Adolescent. Yeah, and uh, um, it's, it's a country of myths, ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, from the very beginning, it was the land of the free and the home of the brave. Yeah, except for the except for the Native Americans. Except right, except for the and the slaves. Um, so the, I'm just pointing out here that there's this disconnect between actuality and. Ideology yeah. that's very strong in the country. Yeah, certainly happens. That because I really strongly believe in what you instead of being fatalistic mm -hmm. and and perlect what they call a political realist and saying, yeah. well, this is what ha needs to happen. Sure. I'm wondering how this election can be viewed as a positive thing, mm -hmm. because I think that Donald Trump is a showman. First Certainly. and foremost. That's, a, that's, a clear, that's an accurate statement. That's yeah. not an opinion. Yeah. He's a showman. He's a consummate showman. I don't even know if he actually believes what he says. No, I think that's very dubious. Um, so I'm not, like, I'm not like, oh, we've elected Hitler and he's going to start incarcerating illegal yeah. aliens and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that he kind of holds up this light to the country, like this is how we're mm -hmm. thinking and this is who we, we've elected to lead us and like okay. how can... You know, it's a it's a symbolic representation, a manifestation yeah. of um, the American psyche writ large. Very clear. So, um, I, in, a, in a lot of ways, I think it can almost be a positive outcome to mm -hmm. see this happening because it might hold that light up to the country as a whole. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Here. What is the? And I'd like to have you crystallize your own view. I'm not trying to, no. certainly not in a debate, but he's certainly holding up a light, and a lot of people are abhorred, horrified by the light that he's showing, you know, by so many of his views and his behavior. Horrified by the light that he's standing up and rally around me, and half the people have, and the half the people are just aghast and horrified, you know. So I'm with you for everything you're saying, but now crystallize it, if you will. 
how can we see that? Some, light, some people, half the people in the country, see that as a positive light, and others see this as casting us into the dark ages. How do you see that to be? How can we turn that, from our own perspective, into something constructive? What's your view? I mean, I think that just as I see if we are to observe him for what he wants us or what he purports to be, mm -hmm. and we just and everyone is sort of granulized into the, the polarization sure. of those views, then of course n nothing very positive will come out of it. Yeah. I suppose my view is more that maybe there'll be growing pains. Uh huh. But envision it, if you will. You know, I'm, asking like, you to, I'm asking you to crystallize to okay, contribute so this group here. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, I think. Okay. It's like, um, an era can consider to be over when its fundamental illusions have been exhausted. Mm -hmm. And if, to, to envision it, I would see Donald Trump, us making our ways through, and his very strong uh, opinions about what he's actually capable of doing and the sorts of issues that the country is mm -hmm. facing mm -hmm. um, will lead American, and this is very nebulous because, uh, you know, lead American, um, the American population in general uh, through, sure. to sure. envision greater view, greater ideas as to like yeah. philosophies beyond this, yeah. this polarization. Mm -hmm. I know it's okay. not very clear, but. I'd like, I'd like other people to respond, please. This is not a time just for question and answer. Please, your, your reflections, whatever you'd like to share with us. Get to gather myself here. Yeah. <clears throat> I was um, really unable to take in your words, but I did put them in my audio, so I will listen to them when I'm a little less refractory. It, yeah. I just was yeah. up on and off all night yeah. reading the Times, the New York yeah. Times as well. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it does take a little bit of time to absorb and then, and then become resilient with it. Um, mm -hmm. I want to use my own um, journey of grief to talk about resilience in the face of difficulty. Um, my daughter overdosed in 2009, um, and I think it was no accident that it was at a time um, when there was a, obviously the great recession around the world, and she'd actually lost her job the day before. Mm. So, uh, and, and she had some other, um, you know, underlying and recent and many, many issues that contributed to her death mm -hmm. uh, a week from her 25th birthday. Mm -hmm. And um, really from the moment that she died, it was interesting, by the way, that um, a Buddhist monk did come and kno knock on our door at 7 in the morning from the Hennepin County, Minneapolis coroner's office to tell us. And my, my first response was, come sit down, and you know, and his English wasn't very good, and there was a moment where you know, I was trying to tell him, well, you know, I know a little bit about Buddhism, and trying to make him feel comfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I really went into um, what I would call a clinician's um, mode, and I was very linear, and I was, I was able to make the, the initial days work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I told myself from the very beginning was that this was an incredible, opportunity for transformation from the very beginning and that there would be no blame and that there would be um, positive generated thought about what what could I do to go out into the world and mm -hmm. and be an agent of positivity um, yeah. and to extend as much as I could compassion to every being that was my 
my goal. Yeah. And um, I was fortunate enough to be a family practice nurse practitioner, and I went back to where I was working, which was with Eskimos or Inupiaq people in Northwest Alaska, where suicide is the highest rate in the, in the, in the US. And I had this incredible opportunity to talk with people on a very deep level about the way they'd suffered, and to, get, to lend them my own perspective, yeah. um, because I was quite credible at that point. Um, they, many people couldn't believe that a white professional would have a child who would kill themselves. Yeah. So I will, I will finish up here by saying that I think that um, this journey I've taken in the last seven years has been really amazing, actually. And amazing is, I can't come up with a more articulate term right now, but, um, but I think that we do all have this opportunity in the face of what seems like just a disaster mm -hmm. um, to, to take it and, 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 and flip it, you know, flip a switch. And understand, of course, that all of us have this um, opportunity to impact others with our wisdom. And, and, and in the act of doing so, you become wiser because you're the role model. And I felt this in, with my daughter's death, an enormous responsibility. I was processing my grief all the time to say, how can I do this kind of right? Um, and show others how you can be in life with whatever disaster happens on your shore and be resilient with it. Thanks. Rachel, correct? Thank you, Rachel. Over here. One question about something that we spoke yesterday, but could be connected with now. Uh, I think that I, underst I understood something bad, because when I first read um, this um, uh, Michael Shermer and, yes. and Neil deGrasse quote, I thought that in fact was a friendly quote. What a friendly, friendly friend, friendly quote. Friendly, yes. Yeah to support that we need more cognitive balance. Because we know that, for example, in the gorilla psychological experiment, people forget, don't see the gorilla. Yes, or, oh yes, I, focus. I've seen the video, sure. sure. Don't the, see the gorilla in the middle of the room. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I was, I didn't understand why we are not supporting this uh, Neil deGrasse view, and Michael Shermer, because I think they are just stating, putting, uh, on place, seeing that most of the time we don't see correct. Yeah. I think that this person is horrible, he, he's unright, he's evil, yeah. and I'm absolutely sure, yeah. because my eye, my ears, my thought, everything told me that, right. but it's not true. Uh -huh. So why we don't think that Michael Shermer and Neil deGrasse are correct? Yeah. It's not that he's simply, my, my, my view, of course, it's my perspective. It's not simply that he's incorrect. I would not say, oh, you're wrong, because people's first-person perspective is actually very reliable. We're so smart. We're so cognitively, attentionally, cognitively, and emotionally balanced that we're seeing 20-20 most of the time. I would love to say that, but that's not the world I live in. And so is he right? I mean, is, is he responding to some facts of reality? The answer is yes, of course he is. Where I believe I differ from him is that and, and Riesman, and Daniel Dennett, and I differ in views, uh, is that they are not suggesting any way we can improve. They're simply saying we are this way, and we should rely upon somebody else. 
And I know from Michael Shermer, that's the scientific community, and specifically that embedded in scientific materialism. As it is for Paul Churchland, only the brain is real, and all subjective experience is either non-existent or totally misleading, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so it is, in fact, an invitation to helplessness, an invitation to a total disempowerment of us, the proletariat, and a total empowerment of somebody else, namely those wielding the instruments of science and technology. It's the new priesthood. I don't think the scientific community wants that burden. They didn't ask for it. But it is, looks like Roman Catholic Church at its worst. And it's had glorious moments, and it's had some pretty dark times. And in its worst, it took itself as the, you know, the infallible sole source of reality. And everybody else's ordinary experience just didn't count at all. You know? And that's how you gain power. By completely demolishing people's self-confidence, their own discriminating intelligence and wisdom, demolishing any notion that they could actually refine and gain greater clarity, greater wisdom, and go to their full potential and say, never mind that. Just rely on me, because I'm the only one We've heard this political individual say, I'm the only one that can solve the problem with ISIS. I'm the only one. So I think that's a very harmful message. I haven't shifted my views at all about his behavior, his attitudes, his facial expressions, and his mode of behavior. Uh, there's an awful lot to be deeply concerned about. Uh, and we must respond in our most wisest way. But I think that's the bottom line. And that is, if you look in classic Buddhist texts on meditation, the nature of emptiness, and so forth, you'll find very similar statements. I mean, in Padmasambhava himself, he'll say all these appearances, I mean, this is remarkable, that's straight from natural liberation. All these objects around you that you feel your world is populated by, they don't exist. They're empty appearances. They're completely delusional. All of these appearances, misleading, all the objects you grasp onto as being really there, they're not there at all. Oh, that sounds like Michael Schirmer, right? But then what Michael Schirmer, the materialists, and people of his mindset, I don't see them presenting, is although that's the situation now, here is the strategy for gaining clarity and wisdom and tapping into eudaimonia and becoming fully awakened and realizing your nature as something that utterly transcends these little tiny limited conceptual boxes of physical mind, matter, space, and time, you know? And that's the difference. So wherever I look, you know, I find, just from just my, my perspective, I, as I listen to Trump, I mean, I couldn't, it was almost like having an itch and having to scratch it. I would listen to him repeatedly. And I could find here and there statements, yeah, yeah, you've made a point. You've made a valid point. I could. And then, you know, so much that I could not agree with. Uh, but that's the fundamental difference, is that he was pointing, Michael Schirmer and the others are pointing to an ocean of delusion, of ignorance of what is actual nature of reality, delusion of misapprehending it. What I didn't see there, apart from simply relying on someone else, someone else with the science and technology, who is a physicalist, apart from that, there seemed to be no strategy at all, except for simply relying on somebody else. And that's what despots have been doing forever. Don't rely upon yourself, don't rely upon each other, Give all of your allegiance to me, and I will solve all your problems. Religious people have done that. Politicians have been done that. Tyrants of all sorts have done that. It never turns out well. Whatever they say, it never turns out well. And so this is why the Buddha said, just before he passed into Nirvana, take no external refuge. Or going right to what I regard from, from my perspective as the, the summit of view, the great perfection. 
Uh, and there, the core samaya, the pledge, your commitment is, do not look outside yourself for the Buddha. As in some externally existent, absolutely other enlightened being, dismissing yourself and say, well, I'll just, I'll just go with that one. Because the Buddha is, at the deepest level, is our own Buddha nature. It is to be found within and not by objecting someone else and then idolizing that person, political party, religious group, lineage, and so forth. So that's my sense. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, please, go here to Janet. Janet. Thank you, yes, Janet. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about um, the elections and I thought about uh, big discussions some years ago in Norway about a bishop that was uh, elected uh, for a bishop. Um, and he had some strong opinions about um, marriage between two... Um, same sex. Yeah, same yeah. sex. Um, and uh, the thing that he got elected um, uh, raised some very important discussions and mm -hmm. made some very important changes mm -hmm. that didn't go in his favor, but still it, it will, would uh, allow it to be uh, lightened up, the discussions, yes. the, the questions. Yeah. They, he wasn't brought to silence. Mm -hmm. It was even more accurate that his opinion could be looked upon. Mm -hmm. So it was a very important mm -hmm. issue, even though many people was against it. Yeah. Well, certainly this new president has raised many issues that people care passionately about and feel that major change is needed. That's a true statement. Uh, and then if that can be turned with the wisdom on both parties and the general population in ways that are constructive, and not just for America as an isolated self-existent entity, which of course doesn't exist at all, but something good for America, which is an utter interdependence and interrelatedness with our neighbors globally, then we will have turned something that looks very distressful into something positive. But this isn't up to Donald Trump. He doesn't have that much power. It's up to all of us around that can turn this into something constructive or fall back in apathy and dismay and just watch how it happens. Yeah. So, Juan Luis or Jose Luis? Luis Luis, yes. Uh, first, I, I understand the, the pain and suffering of all the people in the room, so I, I, I share it with all of you. Uh, second, uh, from years on, decades probably, I think the, the whole world is facing a major change yeah. at all different levels. Um, from a psychological perspective, we've been dealing in authorities mm -hmm. that has been coming down, as you have just mentioned as well, yeah. but people still cannot rely on their inner nature because we haven't been trained, really. No, we have not. Um, we don't have the education. There is the, not the cognitive either, mm -hmm. still. And so, you know, we are facing that change from a psychological perspective. That is being reflected in politics yes. all over the world. Certainly. Um, we are seeing that happening in, in, in Spain, in, in all the Arab countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Morocco, Algeria, all of them may be suffering major changes in the near future, uh -huh. which can uh -huh. be... Yeah. Uh, very difficult for the whole world as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we are seeing now in the States. We yeah. saw it months ago in, in England with the Brexit. Exactly. So I guess we are facing all together this very, very difficult situation. And 
And, you know, I, I just would like to mention a quote. Uh, years ago, someone asked Jung, the psychologist, yeah. do you think the world will survive? And he said, if enough number of people reaches the right level of consciousness, mm -hmm. it will survive. Yeah. I thought it was a nice quote, and, and, mm -hmm. and it reflects that we really have to go deep inside. Yeah. Now is the time. I, I see it as an opportunity in difficult times uh, where we have to give the best of ourselves mm -hmm. for the world and, mm -hmm. and because we are going to face it. And I know difficult times are coming for all of us, uh, so let's be innerly together and work for it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jose Luis. Someone asked Jung, the psychologist, uh, do you think the world will survive? That was, you know, uh, when world wars and things, and, and he, he, he had many visions of what could be happening. And he just answered, if enough people of the world reaches the right level of consciousness, the world will survive. You know, I'd like to respond very briefly. But as a person who was born in America, but lived for much of my life elsewhere, years and years in Europe, years and years in Asia, uh, but still, roots, roots are roots. Uh, it struck me for a very long time, as Greg mentioned from the outset, that America is still a very young country. You know, the people, the Anglos, the Europeans, have only been there for three or four hundred years, short time. And the country as such, not even three hundred years old yet, you know? And so, I regard my own country, and I'm a member of it, but not somebody else, as still quite immature. I think of us as adolescence, like adolescence, like teenager, teenager country, with great big biceps, big military, big muscle, big economy, big ideas, big opportunities, but immature, you know, really immature, easily swayed like teenagers can be, right? And then having lived for years and years in various countries in Europe, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Scotland, and so forth, and coming here, I, I, I'm actually teaching in Europe much more than in America for years now, much more. Uh, that it's not that it's a better continent, which would be a silly statement in any way, but it is clearly a more mature continent. Well, I know something of the Civil War here in the 30s, and I can imagine when, it, when it's clear that Franco would be your new president, something similar must have occurred, right? Something similar must have occurred. And the amount of suffering that's gone on through, I mean, we just look back through history. When, were, when was there a, a stain period? You know, going back to the Romans, going back to the Dark Ages, going back to all the wars during the, the Renaissance and so forth, and the Age of Enlightenment, the Napoleonic, Napoleonic Wars, and how many more wars? And then the First World War. Europe suffered unimaginably. America had no idea, I think, really, so far away. We just sent our boys over and then came back. We didn't really suffer, the boys did. America didn't really. Second World War, how, there wasn't a point here that was tu wasn't touched. Even Switzerland and, and Sweden, you know, stepping, stepping back from it, had to be profoundly influenced. So, and then Russia, Mother Russia, you know, how much suffering there? Unimaginable. And so from suffering can come wisdom, can come memory that you have a 2,000-year-old memory of living here as this culture, this array, this mosaic of cultures, but 2,000 easily. Whereas America, we're looking back on less than 300, you know? 
So I hope that we can, we Americans, I mean, I, I speak from many perspectives, but right now as an American, I hope we can learn from our older brothers and sisters in Europe. I really do. Since still the dominant population in Europe is coming from Europe, not from anywhere else. This is, this is our, our roots are here. I, I really do think of myself as Eurocentric. I hope we can learn from the wisdom here because there's a lot of it, maturity, that just comes from experience, centuries of experience. I hope you can learn, because there's a lot of wisdom here. That's my aspiration. Yeah. Yes, please, we'll go over there, and then I'll sweep left, right. We're not in any hurry here. Yeah, we'll get back to you for sure. I just happened to notice it. I think it's on. Uh, do our capacity to uh, like something, like someone, dislike others, mm -hmm. feel like we belong somewhere, yeah. and separate from someone else, yeah. to see someone as friends, yeah. someone as enemies, mm -hmm correspond to how we perceive the diversity within ourselves? I'm sure it does. Uh, if so, mm -hmm. I really think this is a moment to look within yeah. also. Yeah. Well said. I think Craig has made the same point using different words. But, um, you know, however we conceive of this one individual, Trump or Clinton or anybody else, however we conceive of them, whatever comes to mind, when we think of these individuals. We are the painters, we are the artists who have painted that image from our own mind streams. You know. He cannot have any quality. I cannot imagine that he has any quality. This is a truism. I cannot imagine that he has any quality that I can't imagine in myself. You know. uh, there are, I believe, my, my worldview, there are great spiritual beings, enlightened beings, who do have qualities that I cannot imagine. I haven't been there. I'm still quite an ordinary person. So they're off my scope. So I can only see them as images, really good images of myself. But I'm missing them, of course. I'm getting only an approximation. But when it comes to the dark side of seeing dark qualities, delusion, craving hostility, my sense is that in principle we can imagine it all because we've been there. In this life, past lifetimes, but we can, we, we've been there, you know. And so then exactly this, when we think of the other side in America, I've never seen it. I'm 66 years old, I've never seen a so split. I lived through the Vietnam era, and Bush era, George Bush, pretty divided. Oh, I've never seen anything like now before. Uh, and yet, as we envision the other side, we are exactly, as you said, I think with real insight, we're envisioning the other side of ourselves to which we respond with horror. Otherwise, we couldn't even imagine them. Yeah. And so to see that the healing, this is, what, this is the point that's almost always missed in revolutions. We look outwards. The Bolshevik Revolution, the Civil War here in Spain, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Chinese Communist Revolution, pretty much every revolution that's manifesting out there in the world, and it always starts is 
there is so much suffering, there are causes of suffering, and we're going to fix it by changing something outside. Because I already know what is good and true, because I embody that, I stand for what is good. And what is bad is out there. And now everybody who's with me, are you with me? Now let's go and change the bad which is out there. And it's never turned out well, not over the long term. And so any true religion that gives, any true revolution, I don't mean religion, any true revolution that has sustainable goodness, sustainable well-being, harmony, peace, and so forth. And I think that it is possible. But I, I'm sure it's impossible, impossible if it doesn't begin and is not sustained with a very deep and irreversible transformation from within, a revolution from within. And then it's just good flowing out, and good will give rise to good. Whereas the motivations of, I think, many people who voted Trump in, I think not so much compassion and wisdom, but other mental impulses of fear, of anger, resentment, outrage, sadness, depression, hopelessness, disempowerment, and wanting basically anything that will give rise to change. And he's the option because Hillary stood in their mind as more of the same, more of the same. And they couldn't, be they couldn't bear it. So I think well said. I just gave an, you gave the root text, I just gave a little commentary. Yeah, please. Um, well, I lived in the U.S. for five years. I'm from Madrid, but I lived in um, New York and, and Chicago for five years from 2003 through 2008. Mm -hmm. And I can say that um, what I experienced throughout that time was um, great minds around me in the um, academic environment, in yeah. the media environment, mm -hmm. in um, the religious environment, I think that the U.S. is a very big country and has very bright spots. Yeah. Um, so I feel very much connected to the country, and I feel really sad today. Um, but I, I was talking with Jamie. We are very good friends from New York um, before this morning, and I have this hope in U.S. public institutions. Mm -hmm. I interviewed um, an economist about three weeks ago, Joseph Stiglitz, mm -hmm. uh, the Nobel um, mm -hmm. laureate in economics, and yeah. he uh, really believes that public, U.S. public institutions are going to be able to offset mm -hmm. uh, Trump's um, yeah. excesses, yeah. and so we should uh, have hope in that. And with regards to this, I'm very much interested in um, this path that we are following these weeks, mm -hmm. and how to apply it to the public uh, arena. Yes. I'm very interested in that, and in fact, doing a PhD um, on things that have to do with the public good, the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, Alan, if um, in places like Tibet, where they've been um, undertaking this inner path, this personal transformation, um, um, at a, at a private level, if you can see a better public sphere than the ones we have in, in mm -hmm. we are having now in the Western world. Um, that's one question. And if you have ever had the temptation to uh, train political leaders in meditation. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been reading a book. In fact, I'll recommend it right now. I, I, uh, find it has many points that I'm learning to my benefit, uh, by a Tibetan Lama, very senior, very highly esteemed Tibetan Lama who has his primary center in Australia. 
Uh, and the book is called Demystifying Shambhala. Demystifying Shambhala. It's by a very, very knowledgeable man. So I've never met him, but I've now corresponded over the last week or so. There was some real synchronicity taking place here. Over the last week or so, I've had a lot of email exchanges with his attendant, who attended one of my eight-week retreats in Phuket. So he knows me, we know each other a bit. And he's really become a very, very strong student and uh, assistant helper for this fine, he's simply a very, very fine lama. Um, but so without elaborating the book, which I do recommend, Demystifying Shambhala, it's very inspiring in some ways. Um, but he does go through in quite some detail a lot of the history of Tibet over the last thousand years or so. <coughs> and during these thousand years, I say from, yeah, well, just that, um, especially starting in the, like, the 13th century, no, actually even earlier, about a thousand years, during this period, uh, with the research that Buddhism first came in in the 7th, 8th century, and then was suppressed, and then sprang back around a thousand years ago with Atisha and others. So we have a country that from, especially those period, the 11th, 12th, 13th century, of just massive proliferation of growth of monasteries and just very strong and a very rich diversity. It wasn't locked into schools that were kind of hardcore, hunkering down, we have the best way, but more just in different lineages and people going fluidly from one to another, just like flowers going, like, like bees going into a flower and taking nectar from this or pollen from this and this, and then, you know. And so when he described this, um, and then he moves right into the you know, recent history, uh, the first impression one has is one sees the big picture is, well, this was a unique experiment in humanity. I don't know of any country in the world that was like this, uh, where their spirituality so dominated every aspect of their lives with eventually 6,000 monasteries for 6 million people. There's no place like that. I'm not saying better, of course. I'm just saying I've never seen this, just as a person who's observing global events. Uh, and how many, for these last thousand years, how many individuals gain profound states of realization, manifesting cities of a wide variety, but more important than that, such profound wisdom and compassion. Having said all of that, that sounds like, whoa, like that. And then finding the power trips, the power trips, the political struggles, the, the struggles, the turf acquisition, families coming into power, lineage coming into power, that whole anguishing interface between spirituality and politics, church and state. And we, you, you and Europe have a long history of that, ever since the Roman Empire, ever since Charlemagne, not Charlemagne, but Constantine, right? That's a long history, that's 1500 years. And in America, well, we see the, the hard right, they voted as a block, all those red states. Of course, they voted as a block for this man. They felt, as one, as one evangelical Christian said, God can use even a harlot, he can use this man. You know, that was her view. So let's just overlook all of his glaring faults in ways that his behavior, his attitudes, his speech are so absolutely at variance with the teachings of Jesus. Let's overlook that uh, because God can use this man. And so there's, there's a complete fusion of church and state. Right? God will use this man. We'll have God's emissary in the White House, and his name is Donald J. Trump. So, but seeing this is, okay, that's a very strange interpretation of Christianity, but there it is. Um, well, in Tibet it was no exception. You know, so I love this culture. I've lived in this culture for many, many years. I immerse myself in it for years. Uh, and yet the same troubles that have beset, you know, the church and state interface in Europe throughout, so much of Europe, uh, beset Tibet as well. And so there were one group ransacking, pillaging other monasteries, one sect doing that to another. 
and then they're retaliating, and then they would call in the muscle, the Mongolians often, or they'd bring in this, and they would, and they would, and this went on and on, and even up to the 20th century, the time of the 13th Dalai Lama, so much power now vested in the monastic tradition, which treated many hundreds of thousands of people as serfs, you know, and so much power in the aristocracy, again, treating so many people as serfs, strong alliance with the aristocracy, the government, the, the state, and these very deeply established, very wealthy, very powerful monastic traditions, monastic colleges and so forth, which are very powerful and enormous inertia. Because those who have power, wealth and prestige, they don't want to give it up. They'll do almost anything not to give it up. And as this has been true throughout all of Europe, America and elsewhere, Tibet was no exception. So I've never been an advocate of Tibet as Shangri-La, you know, the utopia we should all aspire for. Having said that, though, and it's just true, I, I don't think anything I'm saying here is very really debatable. I think these are valid observations. Having said that, it's also true that individuals, communities of individuals, could make oases of heaven, I mean, call it what you like, but something really, truly marvelous individuals, but not just one person dominate, no, no, grassroots with their stars in the, in the, in the sky, you know, these marvelous individuals, men and women, uh, who uplifted everyone, inspired everyone, embodied the ideals that they were advocating and teaching to others. Uh, there, have been, there have been throughout this whole history, even in its darkest times, areas where individuals would change the whole environment by their conduct, their aspirations, their profound realizations. And when I first visited Tibet in 1992, my wife and I went to one region, uh, and I don't want to you know, get too idealistic here, but I will say what I experienced. This was in 1992, just 12 years after the period, prior to that period, prior to 1980, it was illegal to say, Omani Pema home. I mean, really, any expression of religion was illegal. You could say serious, serious consequences. Any manifestation of religion of any kind, Buddhism, Islam, anything, you're, you're in for serious trouble. And then that stopped, the Gang of War was rounded up, 1980, suddenly you could start practicing Dharma publicly and not have to keep it absolutely a secret. So in 12 years, from a period in 1980 when there was basically not a single monastery in Tibet that hadn't been destroyed, all but a handful, and they were empty. You know, going from that to what I saw in 1992 when I visited this region, a large valley in eastern Tibet called Abba, in, in Chinese or Andongaba in Tibetan. I visited this place and in 12 years visiting this rather high valley, maybe not quite 3,000 meters up, not terribly high by Tibetan standards, uh, the fields were lush. It was very prosperous agriculturally. Barley, barley, but tall barley, rich barley. And then this beautiful serene valley. And then in that, there was the kind of the main route through it there was a Galupa monastery here, this is within 12 years, a Galupa monastery here with 500 monks across the river, a Sakya monastery with 500 monks. Just down the road, a Galupa monastery with 2,000 monks. Just across and down the road, a Jonamba monastery, 800 monks. Just down the road there, it was, it was like looking out on the field of, and seeing the, the, the red robes of the monks like red poppies in a field, you know. And just seeing these lay people it wasn't some big charismatic person that came in and shook everybody up. There was no such person. It was they had been in a spiritual drought for about at least 20 years, where every aspect of their spiritual life could never be public. 
and they would be severely punished if they did. They'd been through a 20-year drought, and these people in this area, these simple farmers, there's no big cities there at all, it's just farmers and little villages, I was told they gave up to 50% of their income to reestablishing their spiritual heritage and then encouraging their children to fill these places and reignite the flame of Dharma. I went there, I didn't want to leave. It's still under Chinese communists. I didn't want to leave. I just thought, I've never been in an environment like this. And my wife and I got there a little bit illegally uh, just because we you had to have a, a, a pass, a permit to get in there because it was restricted. And we didn't have one. So when we came to the border where they said, you have a pass, he said, well, we said, no, I don't have a permit, but I have a letter to the, I have a letter for the governor. And I did from somebody high up in Beijing. I said, a letter from the government, he'll certainly allow us to say when we get there, so would you let us pass? And they did. So it was illegal, but he didn't lie. Then we got to the town, and I sought out the governor, and he wasn't there. <laughs> so I had a, had a letter for nobody. And then the, what was it, the very, that very night, after I'd visited one monastery after another, and just my heart was singing, uh, then uh, a policeman came. We had seen this little dingy hotel that was absolutely not set up for tourists. Crappy little hotel, dingy little room. And a policeman came to our door and said, and he was Tibetan. But he worked, of course, with the government, he's a policeman. And it turned out he spoke central dialect, which I speak. And he said, oh, Mr. Wallace, I'm very sorry, but you can't stay here. You don't have a permit. I really apologize, but we, you'll have to leave. You know. I said, I understand. You're just doing your job. He said, would you allow me, though, just to spend tomorrow morning, and then you can watch me leave? Would you, would you allow me to spend the morning? Because I'd like to visit some of my monasteries before I go. He said, sure, sure. And next time you come, if you have a permit, I will welcome you back. <laughs> I'd never been kicked out so graciously by a policeman, <laughs> <laughs> having broken their laws, you know. And so the next morning, my wife and I went from one monastery to another, and I went back 12 years later and revisited the same area, this time legally. But I saw what can happen locally, you know, what can happen locally. Around about, in 1992, so many problems still. But in this area, the, the Tibetans got along with the Chinese. There was harmony. The Chinese were not oppressing them, the Tibetans were not revolting against them. In that little oasis, they created for themselves. They got along fine, as they had for most of their history. The Chinese Tibetans do not have a long history of strife. They don't. They're neighbors, and they intermarried. No big deal. And so I looked at that, and I got inspired. Okay, that didn't change all of China, but these were people with good hearts, altruistic motivation, focusing on the, the enrichment, the, the preservation of their dharma. And I thought, if it can happen there, under very dire circumstances, under tremendous travail and suffering and oppression, if it can happen there, then it can happen anywhere. And so I'm just devoting the rest of my life to try to create at least one such environment. And where we're focusing on right now is Tuscany, a beautiful place. You wouldn't train I beg your pardon? You wouldn't train oh, you asked that question about political leaders. Well, the thing about Buddhism is uh, it's not evangelical. That, that a Buddha having achieved enlightenment, one would think, why don't you just run off to all the, all the, the rajas? You know, and just come in and, soup and zap them with your supernatural powers and then pin them down to the ground and say, look, and I got some great dharma to listen. You better listen to me because I'm really awake. And he, he never did that, of course. He never sought out political leaders. And yet he had so much to offer compared to him. You know, I'm nothing, I'm a little grain of sand. Um, but when people asked, 
whether they were farmers or courtesans or government leaders or whether they were kings or business leaders or simple peasants and so forth. Men or women made no difference. It really made no difference. But when people came to him, including kings, they did come to him. Then, of course, he shared his, with, his wisdom with them. And in many cases, you know, it really had a very beneficial effect. But uh, I've never had any political leader seek me out and say, hey, Dr. Wallace, uh, please share your wisdom with me. Uh, so if anybody ever comes knocking at my door, <laughs> of course. But until then, I'll just try to you know, continue the revolution in my own mind. Try to be a beacon of light and not be part of the problem. It's my job. Yeah. Good. Sure, you had your hand up earlier. Anand. Limitless. No, joy. Here we're speaking to Ananda is genuine happiness in Sanskrit. Satchit, and here's Ananda. What's up, Ananda? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to share the other side of the perspective from America because I grew up in the South, from, in Memphis. Ah, oh boy, yeah. that's was, red, red country. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I'm, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a Trump supporter, but it would be okay if I was. Um, uh -huh. Sure, sure. Yeah. this is not an exclusive club. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be um, lynched to talk in the words of where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, you know, Trump is a scary thing for me, especially because um, Trump's a scary thing for me. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. I mean, right now, as it is, I mean, I'm stopped at TSA every time. Yeah, you look like you could be one of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I had like uh, in D.C., I was leaving a, a few weeks ago and had an African-American police officer stop me and do a 45-minute search on me, and then tell me, well, you look like an Arab. He whispered it to <laughs> well, That's me. nice that he was so candid. Yeah. Then you see the racism <laughs> right in your face. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Memphis, and I mean, my friends, when I moved to the West Coast when I was 18, uh, to go to Reed, they said, like, oh, you had the KKK. What's that? You know, like, I didn't think that still existed. Mm. And um, I guess I want to think about this in terms of practice. And, yep, that's uh, what we're here for. You know, um, everything, at least I've seen for practices, things need to be expressed. They have to come. They have to be heard in some sense. Mm -hmm. And um, when you have this winners and losers politics that we do in America, yeah. you're bound to have this happen over and over again. Sure. And whatever side you're on, I mean, at the, the blues are saying we have the right answer, and the reds say they have the right answer, and of course. the right answer can be quite different when it actually fits in a way that works for everybody. Yeah, the, for everybody is the key point. For everybody yeah. is the key point. Yeah. So, and everybody is not just all Americans. We, we Americans can forget that sometimes, because we have this friendly neighbor to the north, and this little pesky neighbor to the south, uh, and it's easy to think, well, that's pretty much it. You know, here we are, the big, great, great big oceans on the other side, where they really matter. <laughs> and uh, whereas in Europe, you just can't think that way. You just can't. Spain cannot think that it's totally an island unto itself, surrounded by, you know, thousands of miles of ocean. And nobody in Europe can. That's an advantage. It's an advantage because the sense that we're isolated, we're separate, as we thought in the First World War, for most of it, as we thought for the first two years of the Second World War, that that's not our business because we have big oceans. Well, that's just re supporting delusion. 
And now that, you know, and in terms of now the environmental issues, the last four years, no, the last five years have been the hottest recorded years in history. And, you know, to deny that we are involved in that is, is absurd. But when it comes to environmental issues, that would have been my life. Had I not encountered Dharma, I would have been an environmentalist. Uh, but from the environmental perspective, the notion that any country is separate is just absolutely absurd, a complete fiction. So it's time to wake, wake up and, and you know, smell these roses. We're all living in interdependence here, and everyone means actually everyone, and not just the human species. To shrug, I mean, this didn't make much of headlines, but to shrug at the fact that we've wiped out half the world wildlife on the planet in 40 years, and we're emptying the oceans of fish and replacing them with plastic bags. Uh, this is not a time to be closing the eyes. So in such times, the necessity, the primacy, the indispensability of Dharma in the richest, broadest sense of the term, becomes just painfully evident, but then joyfully evident. At least there is something that is a possibility. Maybe one more, we'll take a break. Oh, I'm just going to sweep left. We'll have more time. I'm going to go right to the back. Mm, just for share. Uh, Please do. For me, especially the first week when it was an incredible experience to be here, to any one of a few, because it's people from every country, a lot of ages, different style of life. Mm. And I call home, hey mom, hey to a couple of friends. This is amazing to be here. It's one of, better than the, teach, the teachings that are lovely too, but especially in the first week was like, oh, it's amazing to share with people in groups, with different cultures, education. Mm -hmm. It's lovely because for me to represent the world, it's like, yeah. wow, the things are changing. And we're pushing to that. It's like, wow, let's go. Yeah. It's, yes. Yeah. And many friends, when I come back home for sure, ah, what did you study there? What did you do there? And it's like a bomb, that explosion, and like the wave that Samson said. No, that's, for yeah. me, it's so beautiful that's happening right now. Yeah. And continue because it it's the other thing to change the world. And yeah. we are pushing to. Thank you for everyone. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> I think we will pause on that lovely note, that uplifting note. Yes. <laughs> but we do have something of the United Nations here, don't we? And you know, interesting enough, you might not know this, but Paul and Eve and I have been doing this since 1910. It's every single time. In Phuket, in Australia, in Mexico we held one year. Every single time. It's like 50 people and 17 countries. So it's a wonderful thing. This is, I think, I know for Eve and me, that, I mean, we love teaching anyway. You, you know that. But to see that such diversity of background uh, and worldviews, there's not just a group of Buddhists coming together. And I think we've made it as evident as possible. Trump supporters are here also. They're welcome, you know. They must have a vis different vision of him than I do. But then I just have my vision. So, but here we are. So I think we are collectively doing the best we can for right now to sow these seeds of inner transformation, and in a couple of weeks, we'll go out into the world and blessed are the healers. <laughs>